Daniel 9, verses 20 through 27. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys ready? (laughs) All right, before we jump into that, um, do you ever feel like you're just trying to survive the day long enough to get into the bed at the end of the night so that you can wake up again and do it all over, okay? Or am I the only one? I hope this isn't the norm for you. I hope this isn't every day, but you certainly know what I'm talking about, right? There are days, there are seasons when survival is the name of the game. Um, I mean, you know, just theoretically, um, it may start with a kid throwing up at breakfast and then it throws off the whole day and then you got to rearrange work schedules and then something comes unhinged at work and you're trying to get on the phone but you're losing service and, you know, you're driving, you're running out of batteries and then you finally get the right medicine at the store after three tries, get home, and the one who's still in diapers has remove those diapers, and the content of those diapers is now all over his room. It's like sometimes you just have days that you just want to end, right? You want to get to the end of it, and you're in survival mode. Um, Sometimes these aren't just days, though, are they? Sometimes there's whole seasons of survival mode, of um, transition or difficulty or just full plates. You know, it's it's not all bad stuff. It's not all good stuff. It's just a lot of stuff. And we get in this mode and, and we kind of raise our head at some point. We're like, what am I doing? Like, how did I get here? What is my life about? I'm just trying to make it to the next day and the next day. There have been seasons for Janet and I, and I'm sure there will be again when people ask us what's new or how we're doing. And I find myself replying, we're surviving. 
right? We're making it. As if the, uh, as if the best thing I can say, this badge of honor, is that like I made it to the night and I didn't get hit by a bus and I get to wake up tomorrow and do it all over again. Um, and sometimes simply making it from one day to the next is a monumental achievement. Like sometimes that's okay. That's enough. Um, we've been there. You've been there. Uh, we've used survival as kind of our basic standard for success, and that's not all wrong, okay? I mean, our world, and, and especially this particular time, this culture, this era we live in, um, it's not the most hospitable world for calm, serene, conflictless lives. Since sin came crashing into our world, this planet has it's never been hospitable to human flourishing. We've had to fight for every inch and defend every inch of human flourishing in this world. This is a hard place. And um, it can be easy to believe that survival is the bar that we should be shooting for, okay? We can get into that mindset. But then comes Jesus, okay? Then comes Jesus, and in the Bible, he goes and he says things like this. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full, a life of full joy. And and in Acts, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and and all Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And then we read in Hebrews, um, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, uh, let us lay aside every weights and sin which so closely, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's been set before us. And you know what all that sounds like? That doesn't sound much like surviving. That sounds like thriving, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds like a life of spiritual vibrancy, full joy, gospel power, ultra-marathon endurance, vibrant faith, resilient character renewed spirit, kingdom mission. If you're a Christian here this morning, these are the descriptions of your life. Like, this is your calling. Um, This is the new reality that's yours in Jesus. It's already yours, but do you own it, right? It's yours already, but do you own it? Um, Now, uh, I'm not up here. We've got to be careful. I'm not up here preaching a prosperity gospel that says... um, All you need is a little bit better faith or a little bit more faith and all the difficulties and all the troubles in your life will disappear. Just name it and claim it and the brokenness of this world never has to touch you. That's not what we're saying because that's not what the Bible says and we try to say what the Bible says here, okay? This world is broken and and all of life will be marked by difficulty but the gospel does promise a life of joy in any circumstance. It, It promises a life of relationship and love despite any seasons of hardship. Christianity is the offer that God will give you the gift of spiritual thriving anytime and anywhere. It's a promise of renewal and hope. Paul even writes, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. Christianity is an offer of renewal. It's an offer of vibrancy and hope. So the question I want to set before us this morning as we continue to look at Daniel's life in this series that we're going through in Daniel is what makes the difference? 
Okay, what makes a difference? Because living in a frantic and a broken world, that, um, this call to spiritual renewal, to joy, to thriving, can easily get lost in the noise. So what launches us from a life of surviving in this world to thriving in God's kingdom? Renewed spirits, joyful hearts, lives on mission with him. You know, as we've seen through this sermon series in the book of Daniel, Daniel was a man who thrived spiritually, didn't he? Despite his circumstances, he lived in a very, very difficult place to follow God, but his spirit thrived. I mean, the gist of our journey with Daniel over the past few weeks is this. Daniel and his fellow Israelites were taken from their spiritual home in Jerusalem and dropped into a foreign city surrounded by people of every conceivable background and belief and religion. Um, Babylon was secular. It was spiritually distracting. There were great pressures to conform to the norms of the world, to just blend in, fit in, make it to the next day, put your head down, hunker down, and survive. That's where all the gravity was leading them. But God called his people, even while they lived away from home, to do more than to survive and to actually thrive while they were there in exile, to, to follow him in obedience and faith, to work for the good of their neighbors, no matter what they believed, and and to pray for the peace, for the shalom of their city. And Daniel made the move from surviving to thriving in a foreign, inhospitable, difficult place. His life was still hard, actually much harder than ours was, is, but his spirit soared. And our question this morning is how? How did Daniel thrive in a place that was so hard to follow God. We're tempted to think the move from surviving to thriving is for the exceptional people out out there, you know, the the spiritual giants, Um, for those with great strength and vision and energy and the sheer willpower to sort of overcome the challenges of life. We're tempted to read into Daniel um, the, the world's definition of success. He believed in himself. He worked hard. He refused to quit. He was networked. He was a political genius. He was a strategic genius. Um, Some of those things are true of Daniel. Others aren't. But none of them are the secret to his spiritually thriving faith. Because success in God's kingdom looks very different from success in this world. Sometimes the outward signs are similar, but the source of it, the energy, uh, the power, the motivation comes from a very, very different place. How did Daniel do it? And how might we be called to follow Daniel as he follows Christ into a life of vibrancy and renewal and faith and thriving? Three things rise to the surface here at the end of chapter 9 that characterize Daniel's lifetime of thriving faith. Um, And I hope they're practical. I think they are. And also life-giving to us this morning. Here's the first one. We see it in a little throwaway line in verse 21. Let me read these first two verses again. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, this spiritual being, this angel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice." Okay, so last week we looked at this wonderful prayer at the beginning of Daniel 9. 
Uh, Daniel was a man of deep prayer. His prayer life certainly bolstered his spirit and renewed his soul during these days that he lived apart from God's place. Um, But what I want us to see here is how Daniel actually keeps track of time, okay? There's a little throwaway line, but there are no throwaway lines in the Bible. And notice this. He said that Gabriel visited him at the time of the evening sacrifice. Why is this so important? Why is this so interesting? Daniel lived in Babylon for nearly 70 years at this point. Do you know how many evening sacrifices there had been in Babylon the whole time he had been there? None. They didn't have a sacrificial system in Babylon. In fact, there wasn't even a sacrificial system still set up in Jerusalem. The Babylonians had destroyed that decades ago. So for the past 50, 60, 70 years, there was no evening sacrifice. The temple had been destroyed, and yet Daniel is still keeping time based on God's time. He's still keeping time liturgically, okay? He's still keeping time based around the rhythms that God gave his people to follow him in the world. So even while he's away from God's place, he's not in God's place, he still lives in God's calendar. He still lives in God's time while he's away from God's place. And it mentions it here at the very end of his life, so that we can presume he's been doing this day in, day out, thinking along God's calendar for his entire time in exile. Daniel set up his life around the rhythms of trusting in God, even while he was away from God, God's place. Now, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, it was, it was never meant to save the people who practiced it, of course, who performed these sacrifices. I mean, a blood from a goat or a blood from a bull doesn't have power to cure our deepest problems, okay? It can't affect our sin. But what it does do is it sets up reminders. It sets up pointers. It sets up signs that point us to the thing that really does have the power to cure our greatest problem in the world. The whole system of sacrifices is a habit-forming rhythm that God gave his people as a gift so that they could remember that they need salvation, that they weren't good on their own. They need salvation from the outside. They need a substitute to stand in for them and that God provided that for them um, in all that he did. So, so like the rhythm of creation that God established, six days of work, one day of rest, to, to remind us that true human flourishing, uh, thriving even, means submitting to our limits, means resting when we need to rest. It means we're not omnipotent, we're not all-powerful, we're not all-knowing, we're human, and we need to let God be God and we need to let us be us, God sets up these rhythms in the world so that we can thrive here, even while we're away from him. God made us finite and fragile. We're not omnicompetent. He designed us to rest. A full third of our life, we spend unconscious, okay, um, by design. In fact, in Psalm 127, we read this, it's in vain that you rise up early and go to rest late. Uh, eating the bread of anxious toil, for God gives to his beloved sleep. Might it be the case that we are the most spiritually sane when we're unconscious, sleeping at night, because our bodies are finally entering into a rhythm of trusting God. We lay down, we go unconscious, and we trust that God will sustain all things while we're out of commission for a few hours. That's spiritual sanity. 
It's a rhythm of trust that's built into the world that we're asked to follow, that we're asked to build our lives around. Um, now, the, the, the rhythms of trust, the rhythms um, of following God in this world are going to be a little different in Daniel's day than they were in our, in, in, than they are in our day. But um, I want to press this a minute because I do think that this, uh, this call to rest and this call to Sabbath, it's the same. Okay, it remains the same. There are a few of us talking at dinner uh, this weekend about how our work bleeds into our family life and our family life bleeds into our work life. And these boundaries today, because of this little black box, and mine's over there, this little black box we all carry around in our pocket, there are no boundaries anymore, right? I can check emails at 1030 at night in bed if I want to. I can wake up and that's the first thing I can do at seven in the morning if I want to. The, the, the rhythms, the separation of when I'm on when I'm off, when I work, when I rest, they all bleed together. Um, and rhythm, and this, this idea of Sabbath, God gave it to us as a gift. It's so important, actually, that it made God's top ten list. Did you know that? Top ten things in the Old Testament he asked us to do to follow him, and the Sabbath is number four. Um, it's a day of family. It's a day of worship. It's a day of service. It's a day of refreshment. Um, it's, it's a gift uh, of a whole day where we get to center our lives around things we get to do instead of things we have to do. And, but here's the thing. It's a gift. It's also a test. Okay, The Sabbath is a gift, but it's also a test. It's an opportunity given to us each week to ask, do we trust in God's work in the world more than we trust in our own work? In the world, I mean, can we lay down all that we do long enough to consider what God does for a day? Just a day. This is a rhythm of trust that God gave us for our own good. Um, the scattered, the frantic, the boundaryless busyness that comes naturally in our world, um, that, that will happen on accident. That'll just happen no matter what. If we want to schedule time to be unscheduled, we have to do that intentionally. That has to be a plan. The rhythms of work and rest require planning, but they also lead to spiritual thriving. Beyond a Sabbath, there, there's other rhythms of trust we can build into our lives. Um, those simple prayers you know, that we teach our kids to pray before meals, those are little rhythms of trust that every little thing, this meal, this food, is actually a gift from God. They're rhythms of gratitude. Scheduled giving to God's church and God's kingdom, they develop a habit of trust in his riches more than our own riches. Regular hospitality, it's a rhythm that reminds us we can't do this life on our own. We need other people involved. We're connected, sitting around the table together. That's how we hold each other accountable not to look at our phones at 10 at night, right? I mean, the hospitality, rhythms of hospitality will help us thrive spiritually. Daniel lived within God's calendar, even when he didn't live within God's place. And those rhythms of trust grew his heart over decades, uh, keeping calendar time on kingdom time instead of Babylon time. It was countercultural, but it was habit-forming, and ultimately, it was life-saving for him. It formed him profoundly into a man he knew he needed to be and that God had asked him to be. Um, so the question is, what are yours? What are your rhythms of trust that you're setting up in your life to help you form a habit, a heart habit, of looking to God in need and seeing his provision in all things? Rhythms 
of trust. Here's the second one. The second secret to Daniel's thriving faith, despite being in a place that uh, it would have been very easy to simply try to survive, hunker down, disappear, um, is that Daniel knew the future, okay? And let's be honest, knowing the future, that's like the wild card when we're trying to navigate through a cloudy, foggy, confusing, uncertain world. If you know how this thing ends, it makes it a whole lot easier to be in the dark here and now while we are here. It's something like, I think I've used this before, but it's something like when a couple finds out that they're pregnant for the first time, okay? And your uh, future, eight months from now, uh, this future that is coming your way and is going to change your world, it comes crashing into your present, right? The baby's not here yet, but when you find out what your future is going to look like, your heart changes, you start to love different things. You spend your money differently, right? I start researching things like bumbo, b- 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 what are the little seats they sit in? B- b- what are they? Yeah, I don't know if I got it. <laughs> We're done with those things. We've moved on to the next stage. We start researching all kinds of crazy baby stuff we never knew existed before. You spend your money different ways. You spend your time different ways. It's not That future isn't here yet, but that future has come, cr- come crashing in to the present. And if you know the future, then your life today will be different. What do we learn about the future from this famous prophecy in Daniel 9? There's a lot of theories about this, all right, and a lot of disagreement. Daniel is told about what's going to happen over 70 weeks worth of years, or seven, 7 times 70, or 490 years, okay? Any attempts to map these literally onto history have pretty much all failed. And there's still wide debate about what this prophecy means, when it applies. Was it all fulfilled in history in Daniel's day? Was it fulfilled when Christ um, came back, or came the first time? Is it being fulfilled now? Is it going to be fulfilled when he comes back the second time? There are, uh, there's a lot we don't know, but there's some that we, there's some, some links we have, some hyperlinks to other things in the Bible that can help us as we unpack this a little bit. Uh, Here's a few that I find interesting. Seven is a number of wholeness. It's a number of completeness in the Bible. Uh, Seventy is a stand-in number often for a full human life. Okay, 70 years you'll be on this earth kind of thing. Um, Every 49 years in Israel, there was a year of jubilee. This was um, a year of, the 50th year was a year of freedom and restoration. So maybe... 490 years is a jubilee year times 10, which is another number of completeness in the Bible. Uh, Something like a super extra final jubilee, okay? Like an epic era ending cosmic freedom and restoration and peace. My own leaning on this, okay, this is not, this is not Luke, this is Luke's opinion now. This is not Luke telling you what the Bible says. My own leaning on this is that God is showing Daniel the lifespan of the world, okay, this wholeness, this completeness. He's showing him the lifespan of the world, the complete story of his global plan, and, and it unrolls in these three stages that we see. So first, there's a time of hope um, returning to God's people this first seven weeks. And then there's a long stretch, 62 weeks, where God has rebuilt Jerusalem, brought his people home, but they're still in troubled times, it says. So God's at work. 
He's building, he's growing his church, he's gathering his people, but it's still in the messy middle of history, okay? There's still enemies at the gates, and and things aren't cleaned up yet and cleared out and complete, and there's still danger in the world. In other words, that describes our life pretty well. God is building, he's at work, but there is still danger, there's still troubled times. And finally, in the final week, God will defeat our enemies, he'll win our battles for us, and he'll usher his people home. But do you want to know what the final and conclusive answer to this prophecy is? You've heard it here first. We have no idea, okay? And if anybody tells you they do, uh, they're selling you something. But here's the other thing, is that that's okay. Because even if we don't know how the details of this plays out, here's the bigger picture that all of this is pointing to. I mean, just look at some of the promises that God packs into verse 24 when he says, this is what's coming in your certain future as you stay with me, endure with me through this life. God tells us that his plan is to finish the transgression, to, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to, to seal this vision and this prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. This is the future Daniel knew was coming, and that future bled back into his present, and it changed his life. This is the future that you can know too. I mean, you will have, this is your future, you will have total forgiveness for anything you have ever done, are doing, or will do in this life. You will experience full freedom of the righteousness of Christ himself. You will be like Christ. You will be perfect. You will be whole. How would your life today be different if you knew in your bones that was your certain future? How would that bleed back into your present life and change you? How would it change your hope? How would it change the way you interacted with other people? How would it change the way you you fought against sin today? In your future, you will have access to God's most holy place, his home, his family, his person, his presence. You will dwell with him, full of joy, free of burdens, forever. How would that certain future, bleeding back into your present, change your life today if you believed it down into the depths of your heart? I mean, how would that change the way that you worked, that you went about your time, spent your money? If this is your certain future, how would that change the way you lived today? Daniel could face anything in this world because he knew nothing could separate him from that certain hope that God had promised him. And that's a faith and a spiritual life that that can thrive here, not just survive here, okay? Last one. And briefly, Daniel could thrive in a broken world, in a place full of pressure and temptation and difficulty and even outright threats and attempts on his life for the simple but transformative reason that he knew without a doubt because he heard the voice of God tell him that he was dearly loved by God. Did you see that in verse 23? At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, okay? So heaven, the host of heaven, heard Daniel's prayers. And I have come to tell you, for you're greatly loved. Okay? That word, greatly loved, it only occurs nine times in the whole Bible, and it's used of Daniel in back-to-back chapters right here, chapter 9 and chapter 10. It's a word that means tender, 
uh, and precious and desired and highly esteemed. It even can mean craved. And this is how the Bible speaks of God's regard for Daniel, precious in his sight, dearly beloved. When you have a voice, you know this, when you have a voice whispering in your ear that you are loved, that you're deeply loved, that you move into the world with confidence and hope and strength that you wouldn't otherwise. So, so kids, when, when you know your parents are for you and love you and would do anything for you, that, and in their power to help you succeed, even if you can't say it, and even if you don't really, that thought hasn't clicked in, you move into the world in hope and strength than you would otherwise. Uh, husbands and wives, when you know deep in your bones that your spouse loves you above all others, and, and, and you, they are your number one fan, and they are loyal and true, and, and with you till death, there is a power and a stability there that says, well, it's okay. Whatever else happens out there, it's okay, because we're in this together, right? Uh, when you have the unwavering, certain commitment of even just one person, a deep, lifelong friend, you can take risks that you otherwise just wouldn't be able to take. Now imagine if that person whispering that truth in your ear, wherever you are in life, whatever you're doing, wherever you go, and the challenges that lie before you, is God himself, the the king of all things, saying, you are dearly loved. You are dearly loved. Daniel thrived in this world, not because his life was easy, or or particularly, or he was particularly strong, or wise, or smart, or rich, or well-connected, or healthy, or anything else. Daniel thrived because he heard the voice of God, and he knew in his heart, and his mind, and in his bones, that he was deeply loved by the king of all things. He didn't need the love and approval of the world because he had the love and approval of the only voice that ultimately matters at the end of the day. The only way to thrive in this world of ours, while we're away from home spiritually, and not to simply survive, um, is to do whatever it takes to get it into our heads, and into our hearts, and into our bones, that you are loved by God, that he sent his only son to die and to rise again because he wanted you in his family forever. You are dearly loved. Seasons of survival, they're going to come and go, okay? Life gets crazy. But through it all, if we trust Jesus to, to um, establish us, to, to bring us into his family, to put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring us to everlasting righteousness as he promised to do here in Daniel 9. If we put our faith in God's son to achieve all of that on our behalf and apply all of that grace to us for free, if we can get it in, um, that we are desired, precious, highly esteemed by God himself, well, I mean, that changes everything, okay? That changes everything. That's where the power to run this race of endurance comes from. That's where the joy even in the midst of difficulty and suffering, comes from. We know, not based on our effort, but based on Jesus' life given to us, that the ultimate word of approval is already ours. We don't have to go out and earn it. We don't have to go out and achieve it. You are dearly loved. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's your certain future in Jesus. Let it bleed back into your life today. And that is the life of thriving spiritually.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for just the sheer gifts that you've given us in Jesus. Thank you that you have removed our sin as far as the East is from the West. Thank you that you have adopted us into your family. Thank you that you've promised us a home and a future and a family and a people um, and worship and presence with you forever. These gifts, uh, we don't even understand how great they are. But you've poured them out to us through your son, Jesus. Help us look to him in trust. Help us establish rhythms and habits in our life that help our hearts trust. Help us look to you in faith. Jesus, help our hearts delight in all that you've done for us and help us thrive in your kingdom while we're in this world. We love you. Amen.